Dave Emery here. This is for the record program number 1262. Interview number one with Jindy and Jamiel about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on September 30th of the year 2022. And once again, um, it's been almost four years since we began our magnum opus of 25 one-hour interviews. But once again, it is my pleasure and my privilege to bring back to our airways Jindy Eugenio, the author of Destiny the Trade, which was the focal point of 25 one-hour interviews that we did in late 2018 and 2019. And in the interim, Jim has been selected by director Oliver Stone to do the screenplay for the documentary JFK Revisited, uh, in addition to the two-hour JFK Revisited documentary, there is also a four-hour complimentary series called JFK Destiny Betrayed. And there is also a book featuring not only the transcripts of both sets of interviews, but also uh, a number of interviews with some of the key personages in the documentary. So, Jim Eugenia, welcome back to our airwaves. Thank you, Dave. Uh, you know that there are a number of things going on now that uh, resonate, I think, with the JFK assassination and the documentary. Uh, we're hearing a lot, particularly in connection with uh, QAnon and the Donald Trump Club. We're hearing a lot about, quote, conspiracy theory. And that certainly is a way that the uh, discussion of the JFK assassination is routinely dismissed. Well, why don't you tell us about the genesis of the modern term conspiracy theory? Well, that term, conspiracy theory, uh, was very, very seldom used uh, prior to 1967. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't used, but it was very, very infrequently used. But if you go ahead and do an index check to something like the New York Times, all right, you will see that it exploded in its frequency in the second half of 1967. It's been with us ever since. Now, why did that occur? Because there was a declassified CIA memorandum that actually told all CIA assets, and which there were many inside the New York Times and the Washington Post, okay, and also some of the networks, you know, that they should use this term as a pejorative, okay, and to in order in because because the CIA was being bandied about as the perpetrator in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And it literally says this right in the memo, by the way. You know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. All right. And then in the memo, they then use certain means by which the critics could be neutralized. In other words, the conspiracy theorists could be shown to have their pants down. Okay. You know, the, for, for example, they rely too often on coincidences. They also, um, are out to make money, etc. all the way down the line. So if you go ahead and check on the frequency of this term, all right, like I said, 67, 68, it starts going up, you know, like a mountain climber, and it's been all the way up, and it's been with us ever since. Now, as you asked me, one of the great benefits to this whole rubric was the birth of the QAnon movement, okay? And I don't think it's any coincidence that many of the mainstream people 
like to throw in the JFK assassination critics and equate them, you know, with the QAnon movement. And in fact, in, in reality, nothing could be further from the facts. Okay, QAnon is, if you believe it's a serious movement, by the way, which I don't, okay, uh, is a religious kind of based, faith-based kind of a movement, all right? It believes in supernatural things, okay, uh, that are simply, I believe, not possible and will not happen. Whereas the Kennedy assassination critics, going all the way back to people like Harold Weisberg, Mark Lane, Tink Thompson, and Sylvia Marr, have always been factually based, evidentiary based. Okay. I mean, can we prove what we're saying? That's what we ask ourselves. And if we can prove it, then we'll write about it. If we cannot prove it and we're only speculating, we will say that also. All right. So there has been, see, the MSM wants to have it both ways. Okay. They want to go ahead and, and, and associate the JFK researchers with QAnon without ever taking on the arguments that the JFK critics actually make. This is the last thing that they do. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to those specific people like Max Boot and Tim Weiner. Okay. Later on. Uh, very quickly. One of the main reasons why I wanted to do a long series of interviews with you about Destiny Betrayed, that wound up being 25 one-hour talks and could have gone longer, was precisely because I wanted to present the information, the foundation upon which your lines of argument were based. And I, I think they were, frankly, inarguable. Uh, before we actually turn to the JFK Revisited documentary, uh, can you tell us, Jim, a little bit about how this came into being? Of course, Oliver Stone directed the JFK movie, which came out in 1991, and which became a sensation. Uh, Oliver Stone became a lightning rod for all sorts of... Uh, uh, nasty things. And then years later, this documentary comes out. Can you tell us a little bit about the actual birthing of the documentary or the genesis of this project? Yes, be glad to. Back in 2013, all right, um, there was a rather large conference on the JFK case. In Pittsburgh. All right. And I attended and Rob Wilson, who was Oliver's producer, attended and Oliver attended. It was a three or four day conference. And Oliver was not there when I gave my speech, which was on a Sunday. But Rob Wilson was. All right. And that speech was it was the first time I ever addressed this rather enormous issue of how JFK's foreign policy was a clear break from what had preceded him, which was John Foster Dulles and, and Dwight Eisenhower. And I specifically went through instance after instance where Kennedy had clearly broken with these two men. And then I, at the end of the speech, I showed how Lyndon Johnson had restored the Dulles-Eisenhower foreign policy with disastrous results, okay, with in places like Indonesia and Vietnam, all right? Uh, and I should also say Congo, all right? Now, that speech, literally, I'm not patting myself on the back, that literally brought down the house, okay, it got a standing, a long standing ovation. All right. And Rob Wilson heard it. Okay. Uh, a few years later, I was down at Oliver's office because 
my publisher had asked him to write the introduction to a reissue of the JFK assassination, the evidence today. And so I went down there and he wanted me to give him some ideas about what he should write about. And I don't recall how, but that speech came up. Okay. And Rob acknowledged it. All right. And he said, and Oliver said, I don't remember that. I go, no, you weren't there that day. But I said it literally, it brought down the house. So about two or three weeks later, Rob Wilson calls me up and he says, Jim, bring down the PowerPoint of that speech you gave in Pittsburgh back in 2013. I said, okay, fine. So I drove down to Oliver's office and we watched it. Okay. And that kind of sealed the deal. Now, what's interesting about how this that particular conversation the day I showed in the PowerPoint, you know, Oliver was not going to take that big of a role in the making of the film. He said words to the effect like, you know, I'll just do a few interviews, et cetera. That's not the way it turned out. Oliver did the vast majority of the interviews for the film, both versions. Okay. He, I would say off the top of my head, he did 85% of the interviews. Okay. Now, of course, I scripted the questions and then we went over them in his office. Okay. Be, or his hotel suite, you know, before the interview subject came in, but he actually conducted, uh, about 85% of the interviews. Or I think I only did about seven of them. All right. So he ended up taking a bigger, a much bigger role in the film than, uh, and I, and then the reason I think this happened is I believe that Oliver looked at this as a way of going ahead and correcting all the smears that were addressed to him. Okay. Back in, as you mentioned, the media sensation that was created by the film JFK back in 91 and 92. And Oliver really took a battering over about the period of one year. All right. And so I think the way he looked at this was now with all these records that have been declassified. Okay. You will see that I did not deserve the hazing that I got. And in fact, on almost everything, I was correct. And my critics were wrong. That's why I think he decided to go ahead and take a much stronger role in the, in the, in the film than he originally planned on doing. One of the things that we spoke about in the interviews, and I think it is arguably the most important part of your very important book, and that is the role of the media. Uh, we depend on the media as our eyes and ears on the world so that we can make intelligent, uh, theoretically moral decisions, uh, the concept of which is central to the operation of democracy. And yet, time and again in your book, and I think we did a good job of highlighting that, you point out how the media not only didn't tell the truth, but they conspired actively with the intelligence services and with other elements of the power elite in order to perpetuate and in some cases even concoct falsehood in order to cover up the murderous truth. So uh, Oliver Stone, as we noted, was the focal point of a lot of that. George Lardner of the Washington Post attacked the film even before it came out. So he was uh, on the scaffold of a scholar pleasure even before uh, the film came out. And uh, it, it, I was very gratified to see the documentary presented. We'll talk about uh, how the ARRB came into uh, existence. We'll talk about that probably in the second installment of maybe a film. Uh, when the film came out, Jim, when the documentary came out, I should say, there was 
a hit piece. I think it's the only way to describe it by Tim Weimer, who has written for the New York Times, among other publications, the New York Times being the publisher of the Warren Report. And he basically was less than complimentary to you and to Oliver Stone. I remember the headline, uh, it, it was in the Rolling Stone, which I guess is proof that at least in this instance, a Rolling Stone can indeed gather way too much moss. But the uh, headline was, this is where Oliver Stone gets his conspiracy conspiracy theories from. Uh, you would think that someone who wrote for the New York Times might know better than to end a sentence with a preposition, but that's nitpicky. Tell us, Jim, about what Tim Weiner said. How did he characterize Oliver Stone's work, the documentary, and by extension, since he wrote the screenplay, you as well. All right. Tim Weiner's article, which was, as you typified it, it wasn't really an article. It was a hit piece. All right. I mean, any journalist who deserves that name, who had a question about the sourcing in the film, would have called the writer, which was me. All right. Well, he never got in contact with me, either by email or by telephone. And he easily could have done that. Now, the reason he didn't do that, I believe, is because he wanted to go ahead and spread this pile of of horse crap that somehow uh, both Jim Garrison and Oliver Stone were victims of a disinformation campaign from the KGB. Okay. Um, We have a book out now that's called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. That book has both versions of the script, the two-hour version and the four-hour version. All right. Anybody can read that book. And it's clear as day uh, where we got our sourcing from. Because I there's over 500 footnotes in both scripts. All right? There isn't anything important in the film that's not footnoted. He says, for example, that in the film we deal with the uh, rebellion of the French generals against Charles de Gaulle, one of the main issues was the colonial rebellion in Algeria, okay, a, a colony off the north coast of Africa, which rebelled against France, all right, and it turned into a very ugly, bloody uh, imperial war from about 1958 to 1962, all right? It brought down the French government before de Gaulle, and de Gaulle came back into office, all right? And he decided that this was not a very good or noble effort on France's part, and that he was going to withdraw. Well, the generals who were running the war there did not appreciate this very much at all, all right? And so they decided to go ahead and literally to try and get rid of de Gaulle. There were at least six attempts to kill de Gaulle. This group of generals, by the way, I should say, is called the OAS, the Secret Army Organization. All right. And there were at least six attempts. There's a book called Target de Gaulle, which I read and which says that there were actually more than that. All right. And what happened is that they were encouraged in this effort by the Central Intelligence Agency. And we said that in the film. All right. And we went ahead and we showed at least one story out of the press that confirmed this. But in the book, and this is why Tim Weiner didn't call me, our sources for this were Andrew Tully's book, CIA, the inside story. And what's important about that is Andrew Tully is a fan of the CIA. Okay. He used sources out of France, Le Monde and L'Express, 
There was also the London Observer of May the 2nd, 1961. So there's three European sources. We also use the nation from 1961, the Washington Post from April of 1961. And if you can believe it, Tim Weiner's former employer, the New York Times from 1961. All right. So in other words, those are six sources. And I challenge anybody to say that those originated from the KGB. All right. So I concluded, and this is on page 73 of the book. I conclude by saying Tim Weiner criticized our film on the grounds the CIA was not involved in this subterfuge. He appears to have been wrong. And that's kind of understating it. Now, the other BS story he uses is that somehow Jim Garrison was a victim of KGB disinformation from an Italian leftist newspaper called Piazza Piazza Sera. All right. And this is the reason that he charged Clay Shaw and he used this in his effort in the media to make Clay Shaw look like a bad guy, like a villain. Oh, well, this is not true at all. And, and this is ridiculous because Jim Garrison indicted Clay Shaw before that story ever came out. So how on earth could he have been influenced by that story when it, what, it didn't exist at the time? You know, secondly... Jim Garrison had been investigating Clay Shaw since December of 1966. That's what we can prove from the record, the the declassified records of the Garrison investigation. Now, that is about three months before the story ever came out. Finally, to use just one example, if you read Garrison's interview in Playboy magazine, which I believe was in the autumn of 1967. All right. That was the longest interview in the history of that magazine up to that time. I believe it was 26 or 27 pages. All right. Go ahead. Try and find one place in that interview where he uses the Italian article as a source against Clay Shaw. Okay, I couldn't find anything. I mean, nobody is more familiar with the literature on Jim Garrison, okay, or his files than I am. You know, and so it's simply not true. And this, these are the kind of baseless and dubious, uh, made up charges, okay, that people like Tim Weiner uh, use because they simply don't want to confront the evidence in the film. Another thing that Tim Weiner said, this is astonishing. He said that Clay Shaw was not a longtime employee of the CIA. Oh, please. Come on. This is ridiculous. We know that Clay Shaw was in the employee of the Central Intelligence Agency for a period of at least 23 years, okay? And I just uncovered a story where a New York Times reporter, Martin Waldron, who was covering the Garrison investigation at the time, he even admitted that he had sources saying that Shaw was working for the CIA back in 1947 as a covert agent. Now, in the film, and this is what makes me wonder if he even saw the film, I mean, you saw the film, so you know this. We show documents that prove that he was a covert agent of the CIA because they were declassified, okay, from the period of 1994 to 1998, okay, as a result of the review board, which we'll talk about later. So, Jim, I want to jump in for just a second uh, with regard to uh the OAS and the attempts on the Gaul's life, linking those to the program against Kennedy and uh, Kennedy's comments on that, which we'll talk about later in, in our uh, th- this series of interviews. 
Uh, I did a program for the record 1162, where I accessed a lot of information from the book The Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot, whom uh, you use extensively in the uh, documentary. So that there's one source where we have spoken about that. Uh, beyond that, the entire concept of uh, the, of a conspiracy behind uh, the assassination of JFK and uh, the CIA and other national security elements being deeply involved. Uh, what, what Weiner basically did was to, in effect, red bait you and Oliver Stone and the film, basically charging this is KGB disinformation. In the book Destiny Betrayed, and something that we spoke about uh, at some length in the series of interviews that we did. You speak about a guy named Ray Roca, that's him, R-O-C-C-A. Tell us who Ray Roca was, what he had to say about Jim Garrison's case against Clay Shaw, and what the significance of that is. All right. Ray Roca was the first assistant to counterintelligence chief James Angleton. One of his assignments at this time was to keep tabs on the Jim Garrison investigation, which, of course, the CIA was very interested in, to put it mildly. In the fall of 1967, this is after... Uh, the media hit pieces on Garrison were published in places like Newsweek and the Saturday Evening Post and NBC did their smear job, which was so bad that Garrison petitioned the FCC, okay, for equal time. Back then you could do that. All right. And he got it. All right. Now, since Garrison was still working on the case, the CIA called a meeting. That meeting was ordered by Dick Helms. Okay. And Dick Helms, of course, was a director at that time. All right. And there were several people there. It was called, if, um, by the way, I, I'm, I'm being completely accurate here. It was called the Garrison Group. Okay. Representing James Angleton was Ray Roca, his first assistant, who had done all this research on the Garrison case, his case against Clay Shaw and others. If you read the records of that meeting, Roca, very early on in the proceeding, said words of the effect that if Garrison is allowed to proceed unimpeded, Clay Shaw will be Convicted. All right. So in other words, here you have a high official of the Central Intelligence Agency warning them at a meeting called by Dick Helms. All right. That if we don't do something about this, Jim Garrison is going to convict Clay Shaw. All right. Now, what's the significance, the significance of that meeting? Because there were, we have the declassified record on four meetings of the garrison group, all right? And what appears to have happened after this meeting, after Roca's warning, is that the Central Intelligence Agency went into active mode against Jim Garrison, all right? Things like they got in contact with judges and advised them not to honor any of Garrison's subpoenas, which they did not. All right. It appears that they then sent in, uh, infiltrators into Garrison's camp. People like Bill Boxley, who used to work for them. All right. They got in contact with certain media assets. Okay. Which was very effective because the stories about Garrison were almost uniformly negative in the entire, uh, MSM. Uh, spectrum. All right. They set up an, what they call a cleared attorneys panel in New Orleans. 
All right. Clay Shaw's boss at the International Trademark uh, was a member of this group. And they then began to supply lawyers to people who were suspects in Garrison's investigation. And, of course, you didn't have to pay for these guys because they were being paid by the CIA. All right. All right. And the interference with Jim Garrison goes all the way up to the trial, Clay Shaw, because we know that James Angleton was running uh, traces on the prospective jurors at the trial for Clay Shaw. We know the CIA was monitoring that out of their New Orleans office in real time, okay? And we also know that there were some, let us say, kind of extreme measures taken uh, so that Garrison would be deprived of his main witnesses. Richard Case Nagel, for example, had a grenade thrown at him in New York City. He brought the remnants of the grenade down to New Orleans. He laid it on Garrison's desk, and he said words to the effect, I don't think it'd be a good idea if I testified at the trial. All right? And so these are the kind of things that the CIA did as a result of the creation of the Garrison Group. Yeah. Point being that when one attempts to cast uh, the CIA was involved with JFK's assassination or uh, Clay Shaw was guilty and working for the agency. When one attempts to cast that as Russian or Soviet disinformation, obviously having someone of Ray Roper's position and stature. And am I remembering correctly? He was actually deputy director of uh, CIA for counterintelligence. Yes, he he was, he was very high up. Uh, I think he was the first assistant to uh, Angleton, which of course would make him pretty much, I don't know if he had that official title, but he was second in command to James Angleton. James Angleton was the chief of counterintelligence. In, in other words, he was a high-ranking CIA guy. and for him, Very, very high for yeah. a very long time. So for him to discuss in a closed-door meeting of the agency uh, that if unimpeded, Garrison would get a conviction of Clay Shaw, that is, I think, as unequivocal a statement of fact that could not possibly be attributed to Soviet Union, Russia, disinformation, what have you. Ray Roca said that, and there are plenty of other indications as well. I don't see how anyone could spin that as Soviet disinformation. Uh, Jim, the Soviets did it, or Oswald did it for the Soviets, continues to be something... Well, I wouldn't use the word to which we are treated, but, you know, the deluge continues. Uh, tell us about a, a book published by former CIA director James Wolsey called Operation Dragon. <laughs> this was, this was a 300 page book that Wolsey wrote with a guy named Pasipa, who was uh, a former communist bloc intelligence officer under, I think his name was uh, Nikolai Kosoku from the Romania. I probably pronounced that wrong. You can do a better job on that. I think, right. it's, called, I think it's pronounced Kosoku. Okay. And he was one of these defectors, which there were many, when the Soviet bloc was starting to disintegrate. Uh, who came over, uh, to the United States and found gainful employment. All right. With the United States government. Okay. And so Wolsey took him as his writing partner. All right. And they composed a book called Operation Dragon, which proposed an idea that is really kind of startling. All right. Because it has so many problems to it. 
They say that Oswald was a genuine defector to the Soviet Union in 1959, that he had instructions from the top of the Russian government, namely Khrushchev at that time, all right, to go ahead and assassinate uh, Kennedy, all right? Somehow, Khrushchev changed his mind, all right? But since Oswald was now under the influence of Fidel Castro, all right, that Oswald now went ahead and assassinated JFK. Now, that's, you know, it's 300 pages, but that's it in a kind of a nutshell. Now, here's some of the problems with that. They labeled George de Mornschild as one of the two Russian control agents, okay, on this project in the United States. George de Mornschild, before he passed away, I believe it was in 1976 or 77, he said to author Edward Epstein that I would have never gone near Oswald if I was not directed to do so by J. Walton Moore. J. Walton Moore was the station chief for the CIA in Dallas. Okay? So in other words, the Mornschild was told to get into contact, not by the KGB, but by the CIA. Now, the other control agent he names is a guy named Valerie Kostikov. Valerie Kostikov was one of the people who was on duty in the Russian embassy, okay, down in Mexico City, all right, in 1963. He was supposed to be a diplomat, but he was actually a KGB officer. Well, the problem with this is that as more and more and more evidence comes out that's been declassified, it becomes more and more and more doubtful that Oswald really was in Mexico City. In fact, I would say, and I've written about this several times, okay, there is much more evidence today that Oswald wasn't in Mexico City that says he was in Mexico City. The Warren Commission fell for a CIA deception story that was pasted together like paper mache, okay, and under any kind of scrutiny, serious scrutiny, would have fallen apart at the time, all right? So the two big connections that Woolsey tries to make are both false. And I also, you know, I'm this, this totally disagree with the idea that Oswald was a genuine defector. And by the way, I should say, another undermining of this idea is that KGB didn't believe he was a defector. And all you have to do, you know, is read some of the accounts of Oswald in the USSR, and you will see that the KGB did not believe he was genuine. That's why they shipped him out of Moscow, 400 miles to Minsk. And then once he got into Minsk, what happened? The Soviets, the KGB, put a ring of intelligence around him. Okay, plus electronic surveillance in this wonderful apartment that Oswald was set up with. Okay, you know, so this whole idea of Operation Dragon is a complete, if I, if you, if if you understand what he's saying, is a complete smokescreen. Oh, by the way, in JFK Revisited, uh, you feature discussion, uh, or, or actually a, 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 a blue J. Edgar Hoover himself, hardly a pinko, who said that, that it was not Oswald's voice that was uh, recorded, you know, allegedly being in uh, Mexico City. That's true, and that's one of the indications we have that Oswald wasn't there. To For your listeners to really understand this, what happened is that the FBI was in receipt of what the CIA called tapes 
from the Cuban embassy when Oswald was supposed to have visited that place, which I believe was in late September or early October of 1963. All right. Well, since Oswald was in detention in Dallas and he was being interviewed by at least one FBI agent, I believe two of them actually, you know, they both listened to this tape and they wrote a memo saying, whoever this guy is on this tape, it's not the guy we have in detention. It's not Lee Harvey Oswald. All right. So I don't see how you can get very much stronger than that. Okay. Um, and so this is, of course, one of the very serious problems that Woolsey has with his book, which he fails to confront. Uh, the notion that uh, Oswald was a commie is something we built with at great length in our long uh, series of interviews. Uh, Jim, as I'm speaking on September 30th of 2022, there is a war going on. It may very well escalate to World War III. I am scared bleepless about that. But that war, of course, is in Ukraine. And that conflict is a direct echo of uh, an aspect of the Kennedy assassination that I have spoken about. I'm not going to go into any length here uh, because I have done so in numerous programs. But uh, Stefan Bandera was the head of the OUNB. He was a Nazi collaborator. He worked for the Galen organization and uh, through that for the CIA. And the same day, October 15, 1959, that Lee Harvey Oswald, quote, defected, unquote, to the Soviet Union, Stefan Bandera was killed by a guy named Boydon Straczynski, who used a special cyanide gun that had been invented by the Third Reich. The evidence suggests that Stashinsky was actually a double or triple agent. Originally, an OUNB uh, fascist opposed the Soviet Union. Later, uh, because of allegedly pressure on his family, he was turned into a KGB assassin. But when he showed up uh, at the German constabulary, he still had the broken shaft of a key, the head of which had been left in Stefan Bandera's apartment. That may seem picayune, but a professional assassin working for a major intelligence service would never have kept something like that in his possession because it could link him to the crime and would necessitate his elimination in a cleanup operation. Uh, something that I've spoken about in AFA 15, for the record program 777, 778, uh, 876, and 1224, links the alleged assassination of, of uh, Stefan Bandera, allegedly by the KGB, to the assassination of JFK and an organization called the WACCFL. That's the World Anti-Communist Congress for Freedom and Liberation. It was the steering group for the WACL. They developed uh, a whole propaganda campaign, uh, which was given to uh, Julian Salawan's subcommittee in Congress, and was amplified by the elements that we later saw in Wackel to maintain that Lee Harvey Oswald was also a KGB assassin, that he was run by the KGB, and that the assassination of JFK was part of this KGB assassination program. Uh, that was uh, referred to by Peter Dale Scott, the brilliant Berkeley researcher, as a level one cover-up. Uh, after uh, Bandera was assassinated, control of the OUNB went to a guy named Yaroslav Spetsko. He was the wartime head of the collaborationist Ukrainian government that uh, basically institutionalized the Nazi ethnic cleansing program in Ukraine. 
the OUNB dominated the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. That was originally made, uh, put together in 1943, called the Committee of Subjugated Nations. It was a consortium of Eastern European fascist groups and was put together by Adolf Hitler. Uh, so after Bandera's death, what you have with the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations is an organization put together by the Third Reich in 1943, then headed up by Yaroslav Stetsko, the collaborationist leader of wartime Ukraine, collaborating with the Third Reich, and that is who is ruling that particular roost. Now, when Lee Harvey Oswald, allegedly a defector to the Soviet Union, as we looked at, Jim, someone who allegedly gave information about the U-2, about our radar maps to the Soviet Union, uh, which would have been an act of treason. When he came back to the U.S., who met him, and what is the significance of that, in your opinion? Well, the guy who met him when he arrived back into the uh, United States, and by the way, he was given a loan by the State Department <laughs> to get back to the United States. Here's a guy who threatened to give away secrets of the U2, and here's the State Department lending him money. Okay, A guy named Spaz Riken met him as he and his uh, new wife, Marina, arrived in the New York City area. And Spaz Riken was a part of this organization that you just named the ABN, or the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations. He was there, and he escorted Oswald around New York City. Uh, The point being that if Oswald was what we are told he was, there is no way that he would have gotten no. that sort of uh, welcome no. to the U.S. finance by the State Department. You know, Jim, just a brief editorial observation. Uh, the elements of evidence that we will be going into in this series of interviews is, I think, very important because, as Oliver Stone noted in the documentary, conspiracy theory, and we've spoken about the uh, amplification of that term and where it comes from, becomes conspiracy fact. Uh, I find myself uh, somewhat impatient with a lot of the evidentiary minutia. This is not in any way to impugn its accuracy or its integrity or the integrity of the people who have painstakingly uh, dug that up. But the entire official version of the JFK assassination is absolute fresh fertilizer from A to Z. Just taking into uh, consideration the notion of Lee Harvey Oswald as an outspoken Marxist ideologue in the United States Marine Corps in the late 1950s, that in and of itself is beyond the pale. Then, you know, the guy defects to the Soviet Union. Well, Marina Oswald had links, apparently, to Soviet intelligence, as we looked at. She had previously networked, am I remembering the name properly, Robert Webster? Yes. Who was a defector from uh, the Rand Corporation. And uh, so... When Oswald, the quote traitor, unquote, the quote, the quote commie, unquote, comes back to the U.S., then he's working for other widely coffee company headed up by a major supporter of the anti-Castro Cubans, uh, Jagger's child Stovall, which does classified work for the military, including on the YouTube project. And again, the entire situation is beyond belief. It, it, it is something that I don't think even a fiction writer would have concocted. No, it's it's uh, it, it, it's out of Franz Kafka. You know, it's it's it's, it's so we did, it's it's absurd. That's why I used that example. That you know, because that was part of the whole uh, the novel of the absurd. You know, by Kafka and Camus. You know, the idea that somehow somebody like Lee Harvey Oswald will be met by Riken 
okay, and then goes to Dallas-Fort Worth, and he's befriended by George DeMornshield, who was part of the white Russian movement. Let me repeat that again. George DeMornshield was part of the white Russian movement. Now, I'm sure your listeners know what that is, but I'll, in case they don't, this was, these were the people who wanted to overthrow Khrushchev and bring back the monarchy, you know, in the USSR. What on earth would the Mornschild be doing? Okay. Tagging around with Oswald, who was a Russian defector, and Marina Oswald, who had come over from the USSR. What, what on earth would, and then the, the white Russians are simply friendly as pie with this couple. Okay. They're, they're, they go, they bend backwards to get, extend them all the help that they possibly can. And you know, moving, moving in that context that the white Russian community was profoundly linked not only to CIA and other U.S. intelligence agencies, but the Morinfield himself was very close to a guy named Baron Hugo Maydell, who for a, a period of time headed up the Abwehr in North America, German military intelligence for the Third Reich. So, uh, again, the notion that uh, the Kami Oswald, the traitor Oswald, was what we're told, uh, really falls apart rather dramatically. Continue. We, we get Oswald and, uh, and Marina in, in Dallas with the white Russians and it just, it, it, it is. Well, you're, 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 by the way, the way. Let, let me comment. You're exactly right there because they were sponsored by something called the CIA's Tolstoy Foundation. And there was also a large church there in the Dallas Fort Worth area and that was sponsored by the CIA. I mean, I'm sure you know, I don't have to tell you that very often throughout the CIA's history, they have allied themselves with religious movements, you know, for undercover purposes. Okay, so yes, you're exactly right. The right Russians were closely related to the Central Intelligence Agency. Um I want to note uh, briefly in passing that not only are there direct echoes of uh, Stefan Bombera and the Bombera's uh, successor organizations are in control of the military and police institutions in contemporary Ukraine. And Bombera and the chief of his military organization, Roman Shukhevich, were made heroes of the Ukraine. So there is a direct evolutionary uh, entity that is basically in control of the reins of power in Ukraine today. There also are uh, elements that have evolved from the ABN milieu active in China. We've got Pravi Sector and elements of the Azov Battalion active in Hong Kong. Their anthem, glory to Hong Kong, comes from the Slavic Ukraini, the salute with the OUNB, meaning glory to up to Ukraine. Now the official salute of the Ukrainian police and military, and echoed, by the way, by Nancy Pelosi when she greeted uh, Zelensky in that cringeworthy uh, appearance before Congress. Uh, Adrian Zenz is the go-to guy for the alleged genocide against the Uyghurs. He is a fellow with the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. That is an offshoot of the Captive Nations Committee, which was co-founded by Lev Dobryansky, uh, part of the Ukrainian fascist milieu, who was one of the people generating the uh, KGB, uh, killed Bandera, and Oswald was part of that whole program, and also the aforementioned Yaroslav Stetsko. So some of this may appear arcane. Some of this may appear to be a long time ago and very far away. Sadly, it is neither of those. Now, uh, Jim, the notion that the KGB uh, and Valerie Kostikov, because by the way, the WACCFL milieu that I spoke about earlier, was very active, very vocal in linking Oswald with Valerie Kostikov and the KGB. That entire, you know, the... The commies did it, the Soviets and or the Cubans, was instrumental, as was the Mexico City situation, 
in LBJ's persuasion, shall we say, and I'm being very gentle, to uh, the Warren Commission members to uh, basically climb on board that particular arc. Tell us about that, if you would. Well, it, it was it was instrumental. It was di- there was a direct cause and effect relationship. Now you can speculate that LBJ really believed this stuff, but that's a secondary point. The point is that he used this whole paper mache invention of Oswald being down in Mexico City, of Oswald going to the Cuban embassy, of Oswald going to the Soviet embassy, uh, to intimidate people into joining up with the Warren Commission. Now, two of the people he used this on were Senator Richard Russell and Chief Justice Earl Warren. Earl Warren did not want to be on the Warren Commission. He simply didn't want to be any part of it. Okay, But then Johnson called him into his office and he showed him these Pentagon documents that said as many as 40 million people could perish in the first hour if there was a nuclear war between the Soviets and the United States. And he was very explicit about this. You know, I don't want to have to confront Mr. Khrushchev with this information that Oswald was down there meeting with these KGB guys uh, just seven weeks before uh, the assassination did the same thing with Russell. Okay. But the important thing to remember is that Earl Warren allegedly left the White House in tears. He was wiping away tears. And once he got to the very first Warren Commission meeting, it was very obvious that Johnson had intimidated the heck out of him. You know, he he did not want to have any private investigators, okay? He did not want to conduct any independent investigation. In fact, at one point, he even talks about, do we really have to hear witnesses? So in other words, what Warren was going to do, he was going to rely on the FBI, the Secret Service, and the CIA for all of his information, which, oh my God, with what we know of what those guys did today, it would have been a comedy of errors. But okay, yes, Jim. you're correct. Johnson used this whole red-baiting idea, okay, that Oswald had really done this for the Soviets in order to intimidate people under the Warren Commission. Uh, Jim, we're going to talk about John Sherman Cooper, uh, excuse me, about Richard Russell, because along with John Sherman Cooper, he was, as, as the documentary uh, demonstrates, he was actually a dissenting member of the Warren Commission. He did not sign on to a lot of their uh, uh, thesis. Uh, we are almost out of time, Jim, for this first hour. I wonder if you would tell us about your website, kennedysandking.com. Tell us about Black Ops Radio. And tell us where people can get the documentaries, plural, both the two-hour JFK Revisited and the four-hour uh, JFK Destiny Betrayed and the book featuring uh, both uh, transcripts and also inter- uh, supplemental interviews. All right. Uh, I'm the editor of kennedysandking.com, which is a website dealing with the four assassinations of the 60s, which is JFK, Malcolm, MLK, and RFK. I think it's the only one who deals with all four of them. All right. Um also, um, the, I am a regular guest on Leno Sanic's, uh, uh, radio show called Black Op Radio out of Vancouver. All right. And the DVD is in a very nice package. I think it's three discs, which has both versions plus the one with the commentary by me and Oliver. You can get that. We were actually on the Amazon.com uh, best-selling DVD documentary list for eight weeks. We just fell off this week. We were in the top ten for eight straight weeks. And the book was just published about a couple months ago. It's called JFK Revisited Through the Looking Glass. And you can get that uh, at several 
uh, online sites, Barnes and Noble, AB Books, Amazon, of course. All right. And the, I, I really, I'm very proud of the book because we managed to back up everything that we said in both versions of the film. Yes, indeed. And we are all out of time for this first interview. This concludes for the record program number 1262. Interview with interview number one with Jim Diogenio about JFK Revisited. This is being recorded on September 30th of the year 2022. I'm Dave Bermley for Jim Diogenio. Thanks for listening.